You are listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church in Rainbow City, Alabama. More information about our church can be found online at www.12th.co. Good morning, faith family. It's good to see you face to face, even though I only see part of your faces for most of you. Y'all still look just as fine as you did when you don't have a mask on. Uh, it doesn't detract or add to, but I'm just glad, grateful to see you guys in one place. It is good to be with the saints. Uh, the saints, not because we're perfect or because we're good, but because God is good and because he's provided the way for us to be redeemed out of our sin by loving us so much that he would send his only son, Jesus, to bring us into his family. What a glorious, good God we serve. And today we're going to look at a passage of scripture that's going to talk about that. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 10, we're going to be looking specifically at verse 9 as our major verse today. And uh, we are continuing through our trek of how to study the Bible. Over the last couple of weeks, we've studied uh, a lot of pieces of that. Today, we continue on in part two of interpretation. Uh, We start with observe, and then we go to interpret, then we go to imply. And so we're going to apply the text and interpret and observe every time we get together to study the Word of God. But we're going to focus a little bit extra on our teaching time uh, through each individual part of this as we go. And today, we're on part two of interpret. So we're using Romans 10, 9. Uh, The reason I have chosen, according, I think, to the leading of the Holy Spirit to do so, is I believe a lot of the, a lot of, a lot of the use of Romans 10, 9 has been for good for the kingdom. But there have been many who have been well-intentioned, but have misused and misapplied this and misinterpreted this particular verse of Scripture in such a way to obscure and to cheapen the gospel. And I say that heavy-heartedly, I don't say that lightly. And so I want to read the verse, I want to kind of walk through what we've already covered to give you a little bit of background again, if it's your first time chiming in with us, Uh, and then we're going to jump into it and see how we uh, observe, interpret, and apply as we learn how to study the Bible together. So let's look at Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Most of you are really familiar with this if you've been in church at any point in time. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Father, we believe your word. We trust your word. Today I ask, Father, that I cannot, but you can through me speak your truth in grace and love and mercy. And you alone can change hearts. So, Father, I pray that you do that. Change all of our hearts to love you more than when we first walked in here. Shape us into the image of Christ Jesus, your Son, and help us to rightly understand your word as your Spirit teaches us and guides us through the understanding that illumines the understanding of this text to our heart and to our minds. Lord, we ask for you to do that. For alone, we can accomplish nothing of the sort to know you. But you love us so much that you gave us Jesus to bring us into your family. And now your spirit resides in us if we are yours. Because you want us to know you and walk with you and love you because you first loved us in Jesus. Help us in these things this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, let's talk briefly about what we've already covered about how to study the Bible. Uh, we've got three major parts that we're covering. Anytime you study the scriptures, you have three parts that you want to walk through. The first is observe, then you want to interpret, and then you want to apply. Don't just jump to application. We have to first observe. We talked about observation the first week in this series. It means to establish a basic knowledge of what the text is saying. 
to establish a basic knowledge of what the text is saying. We have some rules for observation, if you remember. Those rules are, one, use a good Bible translation. I think for studying the Word of God, it's best to use a word-for-word translation. The Bible was written originally in Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, and so we know that we, most of us, can't go back and read that. And so we trust some of these good translations that are as close as we can be to the original word-for-word Bibles that were put out there in, in the Greek and the Hebrew. And so we look at that and find a good one, such is the English Standard Version, which we're looking at today. Uh, also, the New American Standard Bible, the New King James, those are good options. Compare those translations even, and uh, even then get you a great ESV study Bible. Get you a good study Bible that's not just a life application. We don't want to get the application yet. We want to get to interpretation, how to understand what the Bible's saying in its own like right, what God is telling us in the text, not just how to apply it. And I think the ESV study Bible is one of the best out there. Uh, but then we want to ask good questions. Who, what, when, where, why, how, the things you learn in eighth grade grammar. So we want to go back and apply that here. Who is this written to? Who's the one writing it? Why are they writing it? To, to, to what place are they writing? How does that impact the situation that's going on there? How does that impact how we understand the text? All these kinds of questions. And then ask questions of your questions. Just keep going down until you run out of questions, until you run out of extra good, deep answers. And then we want to look for what the word emphasizes as we're studying. We want to make sure we see anything that's, that's repeated. That's usually important. If it's repetitive uh, in there, if you see a word repeated a bunch of times, there's probably a good reason for that. God gave us reason to understand things by repetition, and so it's important that we notice that. Uh, things like how much space is given to the topic, that's really important to understand as well. If it's only given a little bit of space and it's not the core of what's being said in the passage, then it's probably not as important as some other things in the passage for us. Uh, exaggeration, tone of the author, tone of the way the letter's written, if it's an encouragement, maybe it's a, an admonition or rebuking, it's good to know that to help to understand how to interpret it. And then once we've observed all those things about the text, we then want to take the time to write out the passage and be able to put it in our own words, because when we put it in our own words, then we know that we have a good grasp of what's being said. So take the time to pen it out in that way. Now, we moved in last week into interpretation, and this is really important because now we get into what we call exegesis. I told you last time that interpretation means understanding the meaning of the text at that big word at the exegetical level. What I mean by that is simply understanding the meaning of the text, saying that what the text was intended to convey to the original audience by the original author by the leading and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So trying to get to that core truth. If it means something there and it doesn't mean something similar to us now, then I think we've missed the point. Okay, so we need to get to the original audience's understanding as best we can. We do that with three steps that are simple steps but go way in depth. The first way we do that is by considering the context. You always read verses by looking at all the verses around that. You want to see and understand the immediate context. To get a good picture of that, you need to understand the entire letter or book of the Bible that you're looking at. You may not be able to do that easily when you're talking about Genesis. It's like 50 chapters. So you need to go back and read the introduction in a good study Bible to help get you going on that. That's why that's really important to have one of those as well. We want to have as better, best of understanding as we can about the context and understand that verse in its full context so that we don't wrongly interpret. Okay? And then to make sure we're not off, after you know all the hard work of interpreting the Scripture, then you want to go and look at some good conservative commentaries. When I say conservative, I'm not, I'm not talking politically. 
Okay, I'm talking about theologically conservative, that holds the Bible as God's inerrant word, that is trying to do their best to be just looking at the truth of the text and interpret it as best they can. And that way, when we do that, we compare what we think it means to what they think it means. And just as a little thing that I said, I think, last week, if you come up with an idea about what that Bible verse means, but 2,000 years of Christian history, there's nowhere that that's ever been interpreted that way, it's probably not all 2,000 years that are wrong. You understand? Okay, it's good to check ourselves, right? Check your work. So that's a good place to go to do that. But in the middle of it is the big part I want to focus on today, not just considering the context. And before you go to the commentaries, we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. We need to see how does this verse, how does this passage fit into the overarching narrative of Scripture with all the other things that talk about the similar thing, the themes that run throughout Scripture, the, the thread of tapestry throughout Scripture that we're looking at that day. What does all the Scripture say about that as best we can? Now, I know if you're new to the faith, it's going to take you a while to build up to some of that. That's why we have good systematic theologies, biblical theology books that can help you, uh, good study Bibles that are good for that, like the ESV study Bible. Today we're going to do a lot of letting Scripture interpret Scripture. We do it every week, but I'm going to focus more on our teaching time in that. So let's jump into Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Let's repeat it again. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen. It's true. It is good. It is right. It is what we need to know. It is very much truth. Many of us grew up in church hearing about this, especially as it's connected to what we call the Romans Road, talking about how to come to faith, looking at different verses in Rome, in Romans, the letter to the Romans that Paul wrote. This is one of those. It's a beautiful part of it, saying that you simply don't have to do any work if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is good to recognize that it is not up to us. But this verse has been misused inadvertently sometimes. It has been misapplied, misinterpreted even, to shortchange the gospel by many well-intentioned teachers and preachers so that many people have declared faith in Christ through verses like this because they did not understand the fullness of the gospel, did not get a good perspective on the gospel, and they have proclaimed faith in Jesus, yet what we might say is that faith never really took, right? We know a lot of people that say they're Christians, they confess that they believed in Jesus, they really believed it in that moment, they said, but we see no lifestyle that is pursuing Jesus, no lifestyle of walking with God. So we must understand what this is talking about in the context. So here we go. We're going to do a little in-depth study. Are you ready? Good. Like four of you are, the rest of you will catch up in just a minute. All right, here we go. We're going to jump in to Romans chapter 9, verse 30. If you remember, not too long ago, we were in Romans 8 and then 9. We kind of stopped right around verse 30. We're going to jump back in there to get the greater context here. It was talking about God's election, God's bringing people into his faith family. And we see in verse 30, Paul is addressing some issues here about Israel. And he says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? that is, a righteousness that's by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. 
They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, God says, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He says in verse 1 of chapter 10, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for Israel, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Listen, here it is summed up. The problem is that Israel tried to obtain their salvation and their righteousness through their own adherence to the law of God. Not through believing faith, not through believing in the faith and the promise of God, and especially in the promised one who was to come and who has come, whose name is Jesus, but through their own adherence to the law. We know this as we go back and see the interactions of Jesus with the Israelite leaders, especially the Pharisees. And look at verse 4. He makes it really clear to us that verse 33 of chapter 9 is pointing to verse 4, which says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Make sure we understand this doesn't mean that Christ is abolishing the law or ending it or terminating the law. It means that he is the climax or the fulfillment of the law. Okay? He is fulfilling the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. This means Jesus did everything the law requires in order to become the righteousness for those who believe in him. You see, people from the beginning of the law being given have been striving to attain the perfection of the law and have failed over and over and over and over again. Even though they thought they'd attained it, Jesus came in and said, no, no, you missed the point. It's not just that you shouldn't murder, but if you hate your brother in your heart, you've already committed murder. This is not just that you've committed adultery or not. It's if you've lusted after someone in your heart, you've already committed adultery. And so he's basically shown that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have fallen short of the perfect glory, the perfect marker of perfection, which the word of God shows, the law shows us. And then we see it picked up in Romans 10, 5 through 7. For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Right here he's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. We're not going to jump back in that right now just for sake of time. You should. Make a little note, Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14. In fact, go back and read verse 6 leading up to that to get context. But Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14, he's referring here, he says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that's based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And that's where everybody back then thought, well, I can do it. It says, it's not that hard, you can do it. It's kind of what the scriptures say. But Paul interprets Deuteronomy 30 in light of Jesus. That's what we're supposed to do, right? That's what Jesus did in John chapter 5, 39, where he's hanging out with the, the, the Pharisees. He says, you look for eternal life in the scriptures, but you missed the point. They're all about me, he says. So he is the fulfillment of that. In fact, on the road to Emmaus, he's walking with the disciples. They don't recognize him yet. And he, go, he begins to show how the Christ 
is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures, right? So we should look at and interpret the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. And that's what Paul does here. He says this, you can tell in your Bibles probably by the parenthetical statements. He says this, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is, who will go up into heaven, right, to bring Christ down for the incarnation. Do not say who's going to do that. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Don't say in your heart you're going to do that. You can't do that. Do any of us think that we can be righteous enough to make Christ become one of us? To make Jesus raised from the dead? Is there anything we think we can do to enable that, salvi- that salvific event? No, there's nothing we can do to do it. No matter how far along we are at obeying the law, we cannot accomplish that. God brought Jesus down is what he's saying. Right? God's the one that raised him up from the dead. Not our righteous obedience, but God's glorious mercy and grace. Death couldn't hold him because he fulfilled all the law and overcame death and the grave in his power alone. Not because we are good or righteous. God alone can save us. He's the only one that can give us saving faith. We can't earn it by our adherence to the law. That's what he's pointing out. But Jesus has earned it by his righteous adherence to the law. Even to the point of dying in our place on the cross. Here we get to the immediate context right here. Romans chapter 10, verse 8 through 13. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same, is, the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen and hallelujah, right? It's good news. It's good news. Let's make sure we get this in the right context, though. He's not saying that everybody who professes to be a believer is going to be in heaven or be with the Lord always because we see in Matthew chapter 7 verse 21 and around that area we see that many will say Lord Lord didn't I do all these things for you he's calling them Lord right and he says depart from me I never knew you so this is not a formulaic thing here in the sense that if you just say these exact words saying this way if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord people say that in Matthew 7 and Jesus says depart from me I never knew you He said, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So what does it mean to confess with your mouth? What does it mean to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord? What does it mean to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? How do we rightly understand this in the context of all the scripture, in the context of the fullness of the gospel, to really make sure we get this right? Because to get this wrong can be hugely detrimental to us. Hey, the people there in Matthew 7 are saying, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this for you? That's saying, like, you're my Lord. You, you're the guy. I've been following you. I've been, I've been casting out demons in your name. I mean, this is huge for us to understand this. And many people have gotten it wrong and spoken it wrong. So let's take a few minutes to break it down. First of all, let me say this. The ideas of confession and the ideas of belief are inextricably linked here. Look at verse 9 and 10. 
Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. He's pointing out something here. If you went back and look in in, in Deuteronomy 30, you'd see that the first verse there, verse 9, is is kind of a repetition of what's said in that Deuteronomy 30 passage. So it's talking about it in the same order. And then he goes right behind it in verse 10 and kind of says it more in the order of like how it actually happens in salvation, right? Verse 10, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved, right? He's showing that these are inextricably linked. They all kind of happen in a moment, right? So notice too, though, in our little observation, it's a repetition. It's the same thing said in a different way again, right? Really important, right? In the middle of the passage at the crux of the passage. Secondly, I want you to notice that to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord means more than just saying something that is true. To confess that Jesus is Lord is more than just a verbal assent to truth. For even the demons confess that Jesus is Lord. Luke 4, 33 and 34. In the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He just called him Lord, the Holy One. He referred to him in his right standing. The word Lord, if you go back and look at when the, when the Greek, when they put all the Old Testament to Greeks, everybody in that day could understand it. They, they transliterated that word there in the Hebrew, Yahweh, into this, they, they translated it into this word that's used right here, kurios, Lord. Okay, so when they go back and read the Old Testament, Yahweh, they would see the word Lord that we see for Jesus here. The Holy One of God, right? Luke 4.41, and demons also came out, many crying, you are the Son of God. He rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Or Luke 8, you remember this one, this is the demoniac guy, right? Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out, listen to this, and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. This is a demon who's groveling at the feet of Jesus in a posture of worship before him. And he's calling him the son of the most high. I mean, rightly declaring who he is. So just to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord is not necessarily what Romans 10, 9 is talking about or the demons will be saved, right? They believe it with everything within them. They believe it. They believe it's true. There's no question in their minds who this guy is. They believe it. So what are we talking about? It's important that we get to understand this. James 2, 19 clears it up in case you're still not sure about what I'm saying so far. He says, you believe that God is one. That's what precedes the thing about loving God with all your heart. He says, you do well, even the demons believe, and they shudder. They're fearful. So to say it like this, to confess that Jesus is Lord is to outwardly proclaim your complete and utter allegiance to Jesus as God of the universe. That he is King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what it means to say that he is Lord. That's the context here in Romans. That's because the, the, the Israelites were not doing that. They were trying to earn their own way instead of claiming allegiance and dependence upon him out of their love for him because he first loved them. They're earning their own way. And he said, no, 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 that's not the way it goes. You've got to say, Jesus is Lord. Confess it with mouth. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. This is, this is a different kind of thing. This is faith. This is the definition of faith. 
In other words, say it like this. You are joyfully confessing that Jesus is your king, your God, your Lord. You're joyfully confessing that Jesus rules you and you joyfully submit to his rule. That's what you're saying when you confess this rightly. You're joyfully submitting to his will, his way, his life, his rule. This is not a one-time confession. This is an ongoing confession in your life. And this is not just a confession to the church before you're baptized or to God himself as you're saved, but to the entire world. This is your ongoing confession. This is you being a witness to the gospel wherever you go. Right? This is the ongoing, that if you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, God raised from the dead, and if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. So what does he mean then to say, but to believe in the heart? To believe in the heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. First of all, let me say this. It doesn't just mean simply assenting to the truth of the resurrection intellectually. It doesn't mean just that. When he says believe in your heart, he doesn't mean it like we mean heart usually when we're watching romantic comedies, if you watch those. I couldn't really name a couple or one, but some of you love them. It's not the same thing. Biblically speaking, you can say, well, it's the seat of our emotions in the Bible. Yes, but here and in most places, it means more than that. It's the seat of our volition, the seat of our will. It's everything that drives us. That's why we do all these wrong things, because our heart is wicked. Who can know it, the scriptures say, right? And he's saying here, believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. It means believing in your heart. It means loving God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. We know that because that's what Jesus said in Mark 12. He's asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. There are no half measures here. Thankfully, if we fail, like tomorrow you fail in that way, Jesus' blood has already covered that if you're in Christ. But the beautiful part is, is that you'll turn right back to him and you'll be back in his face, and you'll be walking with him again. That's what it means to be his. It's an all-or-nothing endeavor. This kind of belief can only begin, even, with God quickening our hearts. Did you recognize that? He's the one that does it. In fact, if you go back to Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, you would see this verse leading up to what we just saw quoted. He says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Read it again and understand the language, right? Look at it. And the Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that, in other words, so that this outcome would happen. So he does that so that you will then love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And here's another, that, and here's another outcome. And when that happens, that you may live. See how it builds? Or Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That means he's the author of our salvation. He's the finisher of our salvation. Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. We don't earn it. We can't do it on our own, he's accomplished it. And believing that God raised Jesus from the dead also implies that believing all of the gospel, not just this part about resurrection, believing that you are so sinful that you can't save yourself, that you had to have a savior, believing that, that Jesus is the only way, believing that Jesus had to come and do this, that only by his perfect life can we have perfect salvation because he perfectly obeyed and did and fulfilled all the law so that we could perfectly be forgiven. Because we're not perfect. 
These are all things we know. We can stop right there and be like, amen, let's go to lunch. Not quite yet. I know you want to, but we've got to cover another piece of this. So if we're looking at Scripture, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, we cannot end here yet. Because while we've covered everything in this particular moment in Romans 10.9, we really haven't covered everything the Bible says about how you come to faith. There's one major component that's all throughout the Scriptures that has not been discussed yet. And it's not because it's not discussed anywhere else by Paul, because it is. But we haven't seen it discussed right here. So we need to look at all the other places in Scripture to see what it talks about how you come to faith. Here in Romans 10.9 it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so you could take that and run with that and you say, that's all that's got to happen. And I would agree, yes, it's all that's got to happen. But you don't understand the fullness of that yet. The fullness of that is when you look at other scriptures, we see things that point us to this truth. And this is my last of the truths. It'll take us a couple minutes to diatribe through it. But here we go. Believing on Jesus always includes repentance. It always includes repentance. There's never a time where that's not included in the scriptures, either implicitly or directly. I say that because it's all over the Bible. These words are used interchangeably, repentance and faith, repentance and faith. In fact, Jesus says it in Mark 1, 14 through 15. He never preached the gospel. He never preached faith apart from repentance. It may not be recorded in every version of it, but it's there. Mark 1, 14 and 15. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Turn away from that life, away from me, and come to me. Turn away from trying to earn your way. Come to me. Believe on me. That's the point. It's always together. Repentance is the other side of the coin of faith. They're always together because they're the same. They're connected. They're the same together. Together they make one. See, faith is the gift of God. Repentance is your response to that gift of God. It always goes together. Matthew 4, 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Luke 5, 32, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He doesn't say faith, but he means that. He calls it repentance. Luke 13, 1 through 5, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. In other words, he killed them. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Listen, he says, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He doesn't mean you'll perish in the exact same way, but you will perish a horrible eternity. If you do not likewise repent, like they needed to repent. Luke 24, Verse 44 and on, he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. You see that? Repentance for forgiveness of sins. You cannot divorce repentance from faith is inextricably linked. So when he says in Romans 10, 9, and he says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, it's implied that you're repenting from not being a believer in Jesus. He said, if you believe that God raised him from the dead with all your heart, that's again, it's repenting from not believing. You see? It's implied. The early church never preached belief apart from repentance. Peter at Pentecost 
the first church in Jerusalem, Acts 11, when Peter went and told them about Cornelius and how the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. They said, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. You see, it's repentance. He's granted. It's a gift of the Lord. That's, that's good for us. That's, that's why we're here today. Because God granted for the Gentiles, that's us, to receive repentance for life. Hallelujah, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of repentance. Paul in Athens says he commands all people everywhere to repent, that God's commanding that. In Acts 17, Jesus even warns the church at Ephesus. He says, you, in, in chapter 2 of Revelation, verses 1 through 5, he says it like this. He says, basically, hey, you're doing a great job in all these things, but you've lost your first love, the love for Jesus. But this I have against you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He said, I will take the lampstand out of that church body. It'll be gone. And don't think he wouldn't do it now and hasn't done it many times before in many churches and across the lands because they lost their first love. Listen, brothers and sisters, divorcing faith from repentance has led many well-meaning men to preach an anemic gospel which has given too many people a false hope and a false salvation. May it never be so with us that we would cheapen the gospel to make it more palatable. It is offensive. It is a stumbling block. Let nothing else we do be a stumbling block. But the gospel will be a stumbling block because Jesus is a stumbling block. Let us not try to lessen his value and lessen the impact of the gospel by trying to water it down, even in a well-meaning way. In an effort to ensure that we preach salvation by grace, many well-meaning men have emasculated the gospel, turning the gospel call into a cheap formula for salvation that sounds more like a demand of entitlement that we place upon God rather than a cry of desperation to God for salvation by his mercy and grace in Jesus. Let me give you some examples. I was under teaching growing up that was led in this cheaper gospel. I thought I gave my life to Christ three times, at least, and was not a believer. If you just pray this prayer after me, you'll be saved. Ever heard that language? There is no magic formula for prayer that saves you in the Bible. If you're saved, you will pray. If God's wooing you in, you will talk to him. That's called prayer. But there's no magic prayer formula to save anybody. If you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Yes. But not if you pray this magical incantation, you'll be a Christian now. I've even heard it said to me before. I've heard many people talk about it. You, you, you don't want to say it out loud. Listen, I'll just pray it for you, and you hold my hand, and if you agree with what I'm saying, you squeeze my hand, and I'll know that you agree, and you'll be a Christian. That's the opposite of Romans 10 9. For a guy say, man, you're, you're a Christian now. You bowed your head. You raised your hand that you want to follow Jesus. Or you stood up. Nobody else saw it. Right, sit back down. You write in the back of your Bible today on August, uh, uh, I don't know what the day is, August 20-whatever, 2020. You're a Christian now. Right in the, when the enemy comes at you and tells you you're not a Christian, you, you open up your Bible and you say, no, no, right here in the back of the Bible, it says right here, I'm a Christian. That day I got saved. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. Nowhere. 
doesn't say those things. We have told people that, and they have gone through their life thinking, because I said some prayer and because maybe I got baptized, that that means that I'm a Christian, no matter what I do, no matter what I don't do. And that's nowhere in the Scriptures. Probably the most heartbreaking. It's when we've talked to children, and we have told them, little one, today, because you said these words after me, you're saved. They go through their whole life thinking that they're a Christian when they have no relationship with God because they heard somebody tell them that. It's well-meaning. But it is not scriptural. Here's the hard words. You see places in Scripture at Matthew 24. I'm going to read the entirety of 6 through 14. I'll read it quickly, but it applies to us so apropos for now. Jesus says, talking about the future, which we are a part of, whether this is our time, I don't know, but if we're a part of the future, I'll hear what he says. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. We should take heart to that. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. We could have pestilences, plagues, pandemics to that. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake, he says. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. How many of us have seen our hearts grow cold toward those around us because of the lawlessness that's taken over our land right now? Let it not be so, brothers and sisters. Here he says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So how do you know that you're a Christian? Because you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and with, with the heart believing that, you are justified, and with the mouth confessing that, you are saved, and you will know that you're saved because you persevere to the end. We have taken two doctrines... And we have married them to make a false doctrine which says just because you prayed a prayer, it means you're a Christian and nobody can ever take that away from you. There's no declaration like that in Scripture. What it says is if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And it also says that if you repent of your sin, you will be saved. It also says that the one who endures to the end will be saved. So our job is to say, look, you want assurance of faith? Continue in the faith. You want assurance of faith and where you are in your faith for the Lord? Continue in the faith. Walk face to face with Him. Are you repenting to the Lord every day? Going back to the Lord when you turn away from Him? Then it looks like you're a Christian. But we'll know for sure in the end. May it never be with us, brothers and sisters, that we, that we cheapen the gospel. May God forgive our well-meaning efforts to simplify the gospel as if God needs us us to better communicate his gospel to people. Listen, I stand in a pulpit of men who have proclaimed the gospel strongly and truly and rightly. I know them. I know three of them. One of them mentored me, and I heard the gospel come out of his mouth strongly. One of them I've sat with many times in his home since I moved here. Dr. Morrison has led our state convention to accept the gospel in its fullness, not in cheapening it. 
Let us be the faith family that does this same thing as we continue to carry the banner of the gospel of Jesus. Let us never cheapen the gospel. Oh, how greatly I fear that many on the last day, many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I cast out demons in your name? He'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Let it not be because we've told somebody to just say a sentence and that you're saved now but to say, repent of your sin and turn to the Lord. Profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart with all this within you that, that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Continue in the faith. Show him that you're his. Love him because he first loved you. Persevere to the end. May it never be, Lord, that anyone in our faith family would proclaim an anemic gospel to even one child, to one poor sinner who falls under conviction of your Holy Spirit. Guard us, Lord, from presenting anything less than the full gospel of your son, Jesus, for he alone deserves that fullness. He's done it to deserve it. He should get out of every bit of it. Now, I know little kids can't understand everything we talk about sometimes. You know what? That's okay. They can have childlike faith. And God will assure him as they go that they're his. But let us not try to Give them assurance that is not from the Lord. Let us give them hope. Let us lead them in the ways of righteousness, which is the way of repentance. Let us point them to Jesus every moment of every day because we all need him every moment of every day. And that shows us we're persevering to the end. But what does your word say, Lord? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, Paul says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. We may be shamed by someone here, but we will not be shamed in eternity because Jesus took our shame on the cross. He endured all the shame for us. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Praise the Lord. He says lastly, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're talking to somebody about Jesus and they look like they're under conviction, don't shortchange them of the conviction of the Holy Spirit by trying to give them a brief prayer to pray in that moment. Tell them to go to the Lord and ask for Him to save them. And then when He saves them, they will know they have been saved as they confess. Tell them how. Confess this truth. Believe it with all your heart. Do these things. But do not let us take the place of the Holy Spirit for we are robbing God of His glory. Lord, that you would be made much of by our full adherence to your full good news about your son, Jesus. That you would be the one lifted high. Lord, in this place, we yearn for you to do work like this in our midst. Lord, I pray continually. We as your staff here at this church have prayed continually. Many people in this faith family are praying continually that you would bring people to faith. Lord, let us not circumvent your work. Let us not try to shortchange your spirit's work and take away glory from you. Let us not shortchange the gospel that Jesus died for on the cross in our place for our sins. Lord, let us give it with mercy, 
and kindness and grace, but let us give it in all its fullness. For Jesus displayed the climax, the fulfillment of all the law, the climax, the fulfillment of all history. The one who needs to be on display needs to remain at the forefront. And Lord, we trust you to do the saving work because we cannot bring you down or bring you up from the grave. But you, Jesus, rose from the grave in your own power because you are God. So we trust you, Lord. And we will confess and confess and confess and confess that you are Lord of our lives and we give our lives to you. Help us to confess that in our workplace. Help us to confess that in front of our families who know our sins. But let us confess it as you humble us by your Holy Spirit, as we look into the beautiful gospel of your son Jesus. God, work in us and let us then believe it with all our hearts that he has been raised from the dead because he died for our sins, because he came to serve and to save even his enemies, us, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Let us give him all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church. Feel free to share this with anyone you meet, and we pray that this sermon helped you to be more like Jesus, as 12th Street seeks to be a place where we can find forgiveness for the past and hope for the future.